If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What was life like in a women's prison in 19th century Ireland? Well, today's guest, Elaine Farrell, has been delving into the prison records to find out. Based at Queen's University Belfast, Elaine has been researching women's experiences of incarceration and what they can tell us about life in Ireland at the time for a new book, Women, Crime and Punishment in Ireland, Life in the 19th Century Convict Prison. I spoke to her to find out more. So you've been researching the experience of women in Irish prisons and we're looking at the post-famine period here, which is broadly the second half of the 19th century. Sounds like a really fascinating subject. So what are some of the new insights that you've uncovered with your research? I'm so glad that you've you've kind of picked up on that idea of women's experiences because I suppose when you're looking at a prison, um, for me, I was less interested in maybe that prison building kind of justice system that that got the women there and much more interested in the women's experiences and, and their lives before they got into prison, their experiences in prison, and then even sometimes their experiences afterwards. Um, so for me, you know, kind of thinking about what are the, the kind of main findings from the book, um, I was just so fascinated by the women's lives. I kind of feel like you know, through their prison records, and these records are held in the National Archives of Ireland um, in Dublin, through those records, we can really get a a kind of a sense of women's survival strategies. As you've said, this is post-famine Ireland, when, you know, thinking about the famine, there would have been such starvation, a lot of migration as well. We can, through these, the prison records, we can see that story of emigration because we have files that give addresses of where the women in prison were writing to. So we know that they have children who are going to Britain, who are going to the US, who are going to Canada um, and beyond. Um, and we can also really see opportunism here. You know, there's women's agency there. They're choosing to commit crimes um, and, and it just offers so much of an insight um, into their lives, kind of domestic abuse, motherhood, all sorts of topics. So what types of women found themselves incarcerated? What kind of families and backgrounds did they come from? And also, what kind of crimes landed them in prison? So the as part of the, the project, I, I built a database of the files because I wanted to, to try to track exactly that. Um, so I probably have around three and a half thousand, just over three and a half thousand um, women in that, that database. And I suppose that they're coming from all sorts of backgrounds and the crimes they're committing are, are quite varied. So the sentence could range um, from three years to 20. And I should say that, you know, this is, I'm writing about a convict prison, which is the prison for serious offenders. 
Um, so it would be different to a local prison where somebody might go for a day or two because they were drunk um, or kind of picked up for, for kind of petty crime. So the women who are going to the, the convict prison are those kind of serious offenders. They're getting... Um, Three years is the minimum they could get, but it could go right up to 20 years. There's even women who would have been sentenced to death, but they had their sentence um, commuted to a term of imprisonment instead. So they were kind of saved um, from the hangman's noose. So the average sentence is around five and a half years. They could get out a little bit early because of if they were, you know, well behaved behind bars. There was that bit of incentive um, for them to behave. In terms of the crimes then, it's overwhelming theft-related offences. So it could be stealing from the person, breaking into a house, um, it could be pickpocketing. Um, but there are, women are in prison for, for violent offences as well. You know, there's infant murder, infanticide as it would have been called. Um, there's murder, there's manslaughter, there's kidnapping in there. There's a couple of women who are in for assisting in rape. And sometimes it's, it's, pretty clear that the judges are kind of exasperated. Here's a woman coming in again and again for, for a theft offence and because she now has so many prior offences, she's going to be sentenced to a much longer um, term of imprisonment. And does that emphasis on, on theft, is that because there was a lot of poverty? Is that why people were stealing? I mean, it can be. So so for many of the the women, most definitely it is. A, it's a survival strategy. You know, sometimes it's stealing livestock. Um, sometimes it's stealing clothing, which they're then going to pawn um, so that they can then raise money um, to, you know, pay for, for food um, for their families. Um, I could give you an example of a case where I think there's, there's kind of a survival strategy going on, but there's also other factors. Um, and it's one of my my favourite cases in the sample, if we're you know allowed to have favourites amongst all those thousands of women. Um, but it was this woman, um, Mary Enright. Um, and I knew a lot about Mary Enright before I actually knew how her story ended, I suppose. Um, so I kind of got pretty attached to her. Um, she was born in London. And she was first convicted in Dublin um, in 1881 for stealing two dresses. Um, and she got two months in a local prison. She got married um, to a man in Limerick and then they had several um, children and they moved to Dublin. Um, and she really, she has a kind of a string of theft offences. You know, it's usually stealing clothing. And I think it's because both her and her husband have a, they have a background in tailoring. So this clothing kind of seems to be connected to the occupation as well. So she has, from what I can see, she has around eight offences in the 1880s and 1890s. And then eventually in 1896, she's sentenced to the convict prison. So she's sentenced to three years. Um, she steals silk uh, from a draper's shop um, in Dublin. So she heads off to the convict prison. Um, and the reason I know so much about her is because of all those details. So she's born in London um, and so when I'm trying to track people down, a woman called Mary Enright, which is a relatively unusual surname, but being born in London, I can clearly identify that this is the same woman. And also because she had several children, she's showing up in, in kind of birth um, records. So she's imprisoned in 1896 and then she's discharged in February 1898 on early release. So because she has been well behaved behind bars, um, she gets out early and she goes back to her, back to her family. But three months later, she's back in court again. Now, 
now charged with stealing a shirt. So we can really see there, you know, it's like once somebody's stealing something, then they're they're kind of coming back um, into prison again. She gets three months for that offence. But now because she has breached the term of her early release, she now has to serve that local prison stay. But she now has to go back to the convict prison to serve out the time that was left um, when she got that early release. And at this point, she writes a petition. And I do have some of these kind of petitions in the records, you know, where it's these women's own voices. And that really gives a kind of a glimpse of of what their lives were like or their feelings or their personality. Um, And I'll just read you, it's quite a long petition, but I'll just read you a couple of lines from it, if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. She says, I'm a married woman and the mother of a large family. My whole thought was to reform and be a good mother to my dear children, to think of how anxious I was to make up for all the sufferings they endured during my absence and how I hoped and prayed that nothing would ever separate me from them again. I'm not able to describe my poor darlings have no one belonging to them in Dublin to mind them but strangers. Their father is a man that takes drink and does not seem to know the wants of children further than food. To describe the state of dirt and wretchedness of my poor darlings and my home we're in is almost impossible. The thought of them and the remorse and sorrow for what I've done nearly at times drives me insane. And I just feel like it's heartbreaking. You know, it's there's the heartache, the guilt, um, the anxiety there. And at this time, the family are living in Dublin City in a really congested area um, of Dublin City. They're living in a tenement house with several um, other families. And the petition you know, although convinced me, it didn't convince the authority. So she still has to serve out her time in prison. And so she gets out. But less than a year later, she's back again, you know, charged with her daughters now um, for stealing clothing again. And so she has another prison filed because she goes back to the convict prison on a new charge. And it was, you know, I knew this file existed and I was was going to the National Archives in Dublin to, to get this file to see, you know, what's the what's the next chapter of, of Mary? Mary Enright's life. At this stage, you know, by the the kind of early 20th century, when you open up a prison file, you get photographs. So there's mugshots now of the women. So there's a mugshot when they come in and there's a mugshot when they come out. And I could see, I opened it up, I saw the photographs and I knew she's in for several offences. There's several photographs in that file. But I noticed that one photograph was missing and it was the the discharge photograph. So what had happened is in the early 1900s, she had a string of offences and she went into prison for the last time in 1906 and her discharge photograph was missing which immediately told me that that kind of answer that she had actually died um, in prison and she was only 51 years of age so it was quite a sad story and and I really just kind of feel like that petition and her file and her repeated thefts it really shows us that you know it there's kind of a survival strategy there but also she says herself that at times, you know, when she went into the shop that she was drunk and she was tempted by the goods on display. And this is clearly a woman who has a, she has a problem with alcohol. Her husband also seems to have issues with alcohol. There's no kind of support network there. Um, and she's trying to raise this family where there's gendered expectations that, you know, the, the care of the children falls to the mother. So there's all sorts of things um, going on in Marianne Wright's life. And I think that case file just gives us a bit of an insight into, into the reality, into these lived experiences for women who ended up in prison. So moving on, in fact, to those experiences of women in prison, can you give us a sense of what convict prisons were like at this time? What, say, for example, would a daily routine be like? Yes. So the the daily routine in prison 
um, it, there was lots of different aspects to it in terms of there's this this clear sense that a prison should be to punish somebody for the crime that they have committed, but also to reform them. So it's kind of like get them into the prison and and essentially cure them so that when they go out, that they're not going to commit the crime um, again. But we can see that there's a kind of a gendered aspect to this as well, because there's a sense that when women are coming into prison, that, wh- that they're going to be cured and that when they leave prison, they're actually then going to, um, to kind of educate their families. So this is nearly like by investing in the woman coming into the convict prison, it's nearly like then the family, the children are going to be cured and they're, you know, that it's not going to be this kind of hereditary um, criminality. So officials bring in um, kind of a system. There's um, schooling, reading, writing, arithmetic. Uh, there's geography um, as well that's taught. Work is an important aspect of the day. So for women that involved needlework, there's laundry work. For a couple of years, there's shoemaking going on as well. Uh, the women are making uniforms for the prison in residents, um, but they're also making uniforms for the Irish police force and for other groups. Um, And they also, when through this work, the women were earning money which would then be paid in installments to them after they get out of prison. I suppose it's kind of instilling in women this this idea that you work and then you get something in return. And it also means that the women have money when they're released and they don't have to essentially steal for their, their first meals. Religion is also extremely important and there's Uh, Protestant and Catholic services in the prison, kind of weekly as well as um, on Sundays. Exercise is seen as important, that kind of walking around for an hour a day, that idea of of fresh air being good um, for the mind um, and body. And then sometimes, you know, women committed offences as well when they're behind bars. And an offence could be something, you know, it it could be something very serious, like they they attacked, say, a, a prison matron, as they would have been called, the, the staff member, or maybe they attacked another inmate. And it could also be other things that are quite trivial, you know, like sometimes not eating, or it can also be talking out of turn or, you know, that kind of um, behaviour. And um, so there would be punishments, bread and water, diet um, was given as a punishment. Sometimes they would lose marks and they were earning marks to get out of prison early. So so losing the marks meant that, you know, that would have an impact there. And um, if somebody was violent, there were some restraints could be used, you know, kind of um, muffs or, or something like a straitjacket. And women were also expected to wear uniforms when they were behind bars. And I suppose in many ways, what the officials want to do is they want this kind of uniform form system, you know, that that women are kind of behaving all in this regular way. Every hour of the day is accounted for. But through the records, and I suppose through the punishment records, I can kind of see where women are you know, they're they're kind of expressing their own personalities. They're maybe taking advantage of some things, you know, where, the, where they, yes, they have to wear the uniform, but then some of the women are in trouble because they've been embellishing their uniforms or making their hems a little bit shorter or, or whatever else and taking the starch out of their caps um, so that they're not as rigid. <laughs> that sounds a bit like, you know, people adapting their school uniforms, isn't it? Exactly, Ellie. And, you know, there's um, a couple of people who come to the, the prison because they 
the women's prison in Ireland um, in Mount Joy when it opens in 1858. It's really held up as this kind of uh, nearly like a model prison around the world because it's it's women, it's just for women prisoners and there's women staff as well and, and a woman who's managing um, the prison. So there's international visitors sometimes who come and one of them um, comes from the States, Charles Coffin. And in his records, he describes how sometimes these offences, as they're called, behind bars, you know, these misdeeds that the women are doing. He says that it's a bit like schoolgirls, that they're being punished for these really trivial offences, like talking out of turns. So I think, you know, it's exactly what you're saying. You know, there is that kind of echo of, um, of school going on there. Do we have any sense from any of your sources about women's attitudes towards prison? Was it purely seen as punitive or did some women, for example, get something from it? I'm I'm imagining, for example, women who might have come from abusive or unstable backgrounds. Perhaps this environment wouldn't always be negative? Or is that me trying to see a silver lining where there is none? Uh, I mean, you know, sometimes I'm the same. I'm kind of like, I don't want to make this seem like a lovely place to be. But at the same time, you are right that for some people, you know, it was nearly like here's somewhere to stay. Here's a nearly like a refuge, exactly from what you're saying from that kind of abuse. And I think the the women's reactions to getting this this prison sentence to be going to the convict prison really differed, and it, it just depended entirely on what their circumstances were like, um, and I suppose their personalities as well. So some women are kind of screaming, crying in court when they hear that they're being sentenced to the convict prison. And um, there's one woman, Anne Lynch. And she hears in 1870 that she has been sentenced to seven years for theft. She's in County Tyrone. And in reaction, she actually kicks uh, the thigh, the prison governor's thigh as he's trying to lead her out of court. And so he's trying to take her away and here she kicks his thigh. And honestly, Ellie, I'm sure she was aiming for somewhere else, but she got his thigh anyway. Then she hit the policeman in the face as she tried to hit another. And all the while she's holding a baby in her arms. So this is like a really strong reaction to her prison sentence. But for others, they seem entirely different. You know, the the journalists are there kind of reporting the reaction. And they say, you know, that that the woman kind of didn't express any emotion at her sentence. Um, And some of them just seem entirely blasé about it. And I think it's because, especially for those women who have been there before, it's nearly like in a way they're institutionalised. It's If they're not in the convict prison, then maybe they would be in another institution like a workhouse or maybe they would be in a local prison. So there is some of the women that I have in the records that, you know, they do have kind of a they've come from a string of different institutions. So for them having to stay in an institution for another three years wouldn't be, I suppose, when they're kind of looking at that, it doesn't seem quite as bad as maybe for women who are being, you know, that they're the sole provider for their children and they're being taken away from everything that they have ever known. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They have set up home. They are being a good wife. They are being a good mother. um, And they're trying to, of course, um, get their money that they have earned through their work in prison. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I will return to that point about providing for children in a little bit, but you mentioned earlier female guards. So do we have any sense of the relationship that was intended between guards and prisoners? Was it meant to be antagonistic or was it meant to be more cooperative? And do we have any sense of how that actually played out in reality? Yeah, so so I suppose the, the relationship in theory was supposed to be very much like the staff are essentially model women. And that the the prisoners would kind of look up to these women as, you know, here's here's a good example of, of what a woman looks like. But it can be hard to, the officials found it sometimes quite hard to, to find um, women who were willing to work in a prison who had the, that kind of background. So, so they're also kind of thinking, oh, in an ideal world, it would be, you know, maybe um, lower middle class women who would be working in the prison and um, who would be well educated, who would be refined in manner and all that. Um, but that wasn't always uh, the reality. And so what actually happens? Yes, there's antagon- antagonism. Um, yes, there are staff members who are attacked, you know, physically assaulted suffer really bad injuries sometimes they have to leave work because they you know that they're they're not able or they're so traumatized about it and but there are also cases which surprised me of this kind of close relationship between the women who are being imprisoned and the staff members who are whose task is to essentially control them and lock them in and we can see that coming out in sometimes in the staff files of you know, kind of misbehaviour. So it'll be things like uh, there's a staff member who gave a prisoner a set of keys to go to do an errand for her. But actually, those keys could have... I that mean, doesn't seem very wise. Exactly. But, but you know, that she had kind of built up that trust with the prisoner and the prisoner didn't do anything. She did the, the errand that she was supposed to do and brought the keys back and everything. But 
this was found out. And um, there's other cases where staff members are are giving certain prisoners the best food. And um, there's clearly a, a strong um, relationship going on. Um, and there's I have a couple of letters from this woman called Anne Cunningham, and she was a former inmate, and she's writing back to her sister who's behind bars and she says to her um in the letter she you know because she knows that the letter has been read um by the staff members as well so she's nearly writing to the staff members at the same time um, as she's writing to her her sister and she's writing from new york and in the letter she she kind of says, you know, send my best to to these staff members, send my best to, to these staff members. And she also talks about um about other prisoners. You know, this so the friendships weren't just between kind of staff and inmates, that kind of relationship, but actually across um with the the inmates themselves. Um, and that idea of of you know, kind of asking for somebody or or expressing sometimes um, some other women they express regret when they hear that a staff member's parent has died or you know it's, it just seems like that the staff members are there for years and the prisoners are there for years and so these kind of relationships were nearly um, inevitable and um, that developed between them. So it's definitely not black and white. On the point about relationships between the prisoners, this is something I wanted to ask you about because I think often in the kind of popular perception of prison, primarily prison films and TV and stuff, it's often shown as very hierarchical. You know, you've got to make friends with the right people in prison to stay safe. Do we have any sense that it was like this in these women's prisons or or was that not really the case? So I'm totally fascinated by the friendships behind bars. Um, the whole chapter that I have um, in the book that's, that's about this, this idea of these kind of um, friendships and these relationships. And again, I don't want to overshadow how bad it was by kind of saying, you know, oh, they're all friends behind bars. Um, you know, it was really, it was a really, really difficult life being kind of taken away from family and from children. It definitely wasn't an easy place to live. But, but there is this kind of sense coming out that that there's also a bit of socialising um, taking place um, behind bars. There's notes being written in library books. There's notes being written on toilet paper. Um, for others, there's reports of laughter and singing, clearly showing that there's some kind of um, friendships going on. There's a, a report of a Punch and Judy show um, that goes on um, one night. Um, and some inmates do decide to stay together after release. And I think that shows the kind of extent of the bonds. So that woman, Anne Cunningham, that I mentioned, who was in New York and she was writing back to her sister in prison, she had actually, in her letters, she reveals that she has actually helped two other inmates who came to New York and she has actually been able to essentially find them jobs or she gave them a place to stay for a while until they were able to find a job. So in a way, Anne Cunningham, who was a former prisoner herself, is nearly taking on that role of this kind of prison aid society, you know, kind of helping women after release. And she also pleads for the release of um, a woman called Catherine Hennessy, who had been in prison for years for killing the child of another woman. And um, so Catherine Hennessy is an older woman. Um, and she has spent years, but I mean, she's in there since the 1850s. But Anne Cunningham sends in um, the 1870s, Anne Cunningham writes back, you know, sending, um, requesting that Catherine Hennessy be released and just put on a put on a boat um, and to come and join her um, in New York. So clearly this relationship had developed. In terms of the hierarchy, it's so difficult to, to figure out who's at the top of the hierarchy. And I think it's because I have the records of those who got caught. 
So I know who got caught for this kind of um, misbehavior. I think the the women who are at the top of the hierarchy are the ones that are most unlikely to get caught. Um, and they're the ones who will have been protected. And but what I do have is there's so many cases behind bars of of goods being found, you know, um, tobacco is found. There's food found that isn't the type of food that's given out in the prison. So there's there's some kind of goods networks that that's kind of working on the outside and these goods are coming into the prison and all this sort of contraband that's coming in. So sometimes women will be caught with it and then other times it's clear that it's been passed around. So there's most definitely all those kind of networks going behind bars. But who's at the top of it? I just don't know. <laughs> well, how much were prisoners connected with the outside world? So obviously people were getting in some kind of goods. But I'm also thinking about something you mentioned, mentioned earlier, which is women being cut off from being able to provide for their families and their children. Were they allowed any contact with children, for example? So they were allowed some contact, but it is definitely limited. So it depended on on what what position they were in the prison system. So as they were better behaved and they're kind of getting towards the end of their sentence, they're allowed a few more privileges. And um, what that means is that rather than getting, you know, a letter kind of every six months, you're entitled to a letter every three months. So it's, you know, that's the the kind of reality. So yes, they could write letters at intervals. Children could write letters and again, they would be given to them at intervals. So it's not kind of as many um, as they want. And they were also allowed visitors. And again, it's, you know, kind of a, a half hour visit at set intervals. But the problem with the visits is that the prison in Dublin catered for the whole island of Ireland. So it is not easy for somebody who who lives on the other side of the island to be able to travel to Dublin for this visit. I can see that in some of the letters that I have that survive in the records where, you know, some of the, the individuals are saying, you know, it's not easy to get there or that, you know, that they have to care for somebody at home and so they can't leave them. So there's a financial implication there as well as time, you know, somebody who, who can take the time away from work to actually go um, and visit. So what I can see is that the women who are from Dublin City and um, whose family husbands are within easy, easy reach of the prison, they do get these kind of visitors um, at intervals, um, sometimes around Christmas time, as well as that kind of, you know, Christmas visit. Um, but for women who are, you know, who, whose family may be, you know, sometimes there's going to be a sense of shame there, this idea that maybe they, they don't want to maintain a connection either. Um, but there's also that that kind of financial um, and time implication for those who are living um, just too far away from the prison. And so there weren't any formal provisions or systems in place for the children of women who were put in prison. Would it just be see who could, who they can place them with, really? Yes, it, it depended on the, the time period. So actually, um, at the beginning in the 1850s, so, so the prison was set up in the wake of transportation. So when transportation is no longer available, um, the women are going to, to prison where in previous decades they would have been um, transported. So in the in the 1850s, and um, when it's established initially, children are actually coming into prison um, with their mothers. So when they're quite young, they would be coming in with their mothers. But this means because the mothers have quite long sentences, that the children are now growing up in prison. So you end up with children, you know, kind of seven, eight years old behind bars because they were either sometimes born in the prison or they have been brought in. 
um, because there was nobody else to take care of them. Um, so this becomes a concern for the officials because they're they're concerned that potentially they're encouraging children to be criminal if they're growing up in the prison and that, you know, there's a concern that they're boasting about their mother's um, crimes um, and that this isn't quite what uh, the prison was supposed to be. So, so eventually um, in the late 1860s, they do bring in the uh, regulations that the children have, you know, infants can come in and, and children who are born will remain with their mother kind of for around a year or two um, and then they will have to leave. So the children could go to family members. So it could be, sometimes it might be the father um, or it could be, uh, you know, the woman's family. And um, sometimes the children ended up in workhouses or um, in the 1860s, then they might end up in um, industrial schools. So they would go um, kind of spend time in these institutions. And then when the mother is ready, um, she might be able to pick them up. There's a uh, St. Bridget's Orphanage was for Catholic children and essentially the, the children would be placed with foster families um, until the mother was released from prison and then she would go and collect them. But there are just some kind of heartbreaking cases of, you know, the, the mothers kind of reuniting with the children who they haven't seen for years and, you know, the child doesn't know them um, and and hasn't been able to kind of maintain contact. I think looking at the records that it must have been quite hard um, for the mothers of quite young children um, behind bars just not being able to maintain contact. That image of the of children growing up in prison is really striking, isn't it? So we were talking about um, prison conditions and daily routine and I was just intrigued about how much this mirrored men's prisons at the time or did it differ in some ways? So we can definitely see that there's gender differences going on um, in prison. In a general sense, I suppose things are the same in terms of, yes, there's a uniform, there's a regimented prison day where there's work, there's this diet, there's kind of strict rules about behaviour, religious instruction and education. That That's kind of the, the general picture. But there are distinguishing factors um, there, and there are clear differences between the male prison and the female difference, the female prison. And I suppose one of them, uh, you know, is what, what I've just mentioned about children being in the, the women's prison, where there would not be children in the male prison. That's a clear difference compared to the male prison. And um, the women, for women, they've kind of, for Catholic women in particular, and the, the prison was predominantly Catholic population, just because that reflected the general population in Ireland um, at that time. So religious instruction for Catholic women would involve nuns in the way that it wouldn't have for or male prison. And there's also kind of gendered ideas about the type of work that's appropriate for women. And that's coming up to, you know, laundry work, sewing, they're kind of seen as um, women's activities at the time. And again, I think um, there's ideas coming out about gendered behaviour too. So what might be you know, just kind of like a, a caution in a male prison might be punished more in a female prison because there's that kind of sense of this isn't how a woman should behave. You've given some great case studies and examples throughout this conversation, obviously, many of which have ended with the person going back to prison. Would that be the most common pattern or what were some of the main things that happened to women after prison? Yes. So so very often they went um, back. And in many ways, it's because they have already been in prison that then there, there's this 
when they come before the judges, there's kind of that requirement that if they've been in the convict prison before, that they, they then have to go back um, again. It was kind of seen as an incentive, but a, near, uh, a disincentive to crime. But actually, it nearly results then in, in there being no escape um, for women. Um, some For some of them, they, they return home and, and that's it. And I can kind of see them, there they are in the census, there they are 10 years later in the census again. And, and it seems like actually this crime for which they were in prison was kind of like, uh, that was a one off that that wasn't they weren't a career criminal for many of them they actually migrate and we can see we can kind of understand this you know it's like here's nearly a fresh start for the women and especially it really depended on their crime but but say for um some of the women who maybe had committed infanticide or maybe uh, some kind of a violent crime you can you can kind of imagine at this time that actually maybe the community wouldn't have been all that welcoming to them if they were coming back and so several of them do migrate there's a woman who's on the front cover of the book Catherine Lavelle um, and she is in prison. Um, she's only a teenager. She's accused, along with her brother and her mother, um, of the murder of her father. And um, so the the three of them are are charged, um, and the three of them are convicted. Now Catherine and Thomas are convicted of manslaughter, um, and so they get ten years. And the mother, um, she's given life, um, in prison. So it's kind of seen like the the mother is the one, um, behind it. And through these these records, we can kind of see their Mary Lavelle, the the mother. She says about how her husband, um, was uh, quite abusive towards her, um, and she actually reported him in a, a few days before the murder took place. So she went to the police to try to make an official statement. So Catherine Lavelle, she's one of those who's who's very well behaved behind bars. You know, her her record of her behaviour is is clean. You know, there's no kind of um, indication that she was, you know, talking out of turn or getting up to anything else. And so she's released, she's given early release and she's released in 1888 um, and she migrates to New Jersey and her brother is actually released early as well in order to join her because she makes... Catherine makes this this she makes an appeal because she says, you know, that she has grown up in rural County Mayo and she had never actually left her village before she was charged with this crime. So so she has grown up in this village and never never left that village and ends up having to go across the country um, to the Dublin prison. And now she's going to join family members who since the crime have moved to New Jersey. But so she kind of puts forward this idea that she needs her mother to come with her because she has never been out of the country before. But in the end, it's her brother, Thomas, um, who goes. And eventually then in 1892, so four years later, the mother is released and she heads over to New Jersey as well. So we can kind of see it's, it's as a result of this crime that that family is entirely displaced to New Jersey. And you can imagine that, you know, there is that kind of sense of not wanting to return home. And the officials, I think, were quite keen on emigration. Maybe it seems to echo a little bit the transportation, but you can imagine that they're they're kind of thinking, yes, this is a fresh start. But also if this person commits a crime, well, it's not our problem anymore because they're they're actually um somewhere else. Well, obviously, from your research, you're not just looking at women in prison. You're looking at women who went to prison, but their lives as a whole. And I think that kind of takes us on to a nice final question, which would be what looking at women prisoners' experiences tells us about a much broader topic of women's lives in Ireland at the time and the lives of those who were perhaps at the very bottom of society often. 
Yes, I I mean I really, you know, it was kind of trying to get uh, trying to get a sense of women's lives that was really the focus of the book. Um, and I I did really want to convey those lived realities. I think through the prison records, I mean the the records are just so rich. The records that are in the National Archives of Ireland, we're really getting this this view of of how they survived, how they kind of, it was nearly like a patchwork sometimes of survival techniques. And sometimes that patchwork involved criminality. And then when they're behind bars, we can see who they're writing to so we can get a sense of what their what their families were like. When they're, sometimes when they write their petitions to try to get out of prison early, we can see how they explain their crimes. But we can really see this kind of, um, where they see gender views. You know, they say like they're, that they're a Mother or they're a daughter and they're a sister. They have these kind of family responsibilities. And we can see that sense of family obligation coming in through the letter writing and through sometimes the visits to prison as well. We can see women's agency, you know, the, the roles that they're playing in the household, their roles as wives. Most of the women in the sample are unmarried, um, but that didn't necessarily mean that they didn't have children. And so we have that that kind of offers such an insight into motherhood and shows us the the lengths that many of the women were going to for their children and their views. We do get such a sense, a good sense of how these institutions were connected. There's a case from 1862 where there's 14 girls and women who come from a single workhouse because of an arson attack um, that they committed um, in the South Dublin um, Union, South Dublin Workhouse. Um, So we can see this kind of institutionalisation. And through those records, we can see that many of these girls and women have grown up in the workhouse. That is all they know. They have nowhere to go when they are released. And we can see such clear gender attitudes about what it was to be a mother in 19th century Ireland, what it was to be a wife, what it was to be a sister. And, and then after they're released, you know, kind of what they what the women go on to do and how they, I suppose, try to, in some cases, how they try to explain their, their actions. So in their letters then back to the prison, they're kind of talking about about what the kind of what they've learned, so you know how they're they have set up home. They are being a good wife. They are being a good mother, um, and they're trying to, of course, um, get their money that they have earned through their work in prison. That was Elaine Farrell. Her book on this subject: Women, Crime, and Punishment in Ireland: Life in the Nineteenth-Century Convict Prison is out now, published by Cambridge University Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Ewart and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about the Maya.